Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and we're going to continue our discussion on the topic of leadership today with my guest, Charles C. Mance. Charles is the author of The Leadership Wisdom of Jesus, which was released in its third edition earlier this year. To obtain a copy of our featured book, please visit the publisher's website at www.bkconnection.com. You can access today's podcast and all of our Bookends interviews by visiting iTunes, or you can visit bookendsbookclub.net, where you will find all of our podcasts plus the Bookends resource blog containing free chapters and resources provided by our featured authors, as well as discussion guides for many of our selections. After reading The Leadership Wisdom of Jesus, you may want to discuss it, and we've created a place for you to do this. Just log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion, and join a community where you can discuss our featured selections. Charles Mance, welcome to Bookends. Thank you. It's great to have you with us today, and I really enjoyed your book. Um, oh, great. And it, it, the book continues to grow in its demand, and of course, you've just released the third edition. When did it, or how did it first hit you that the teachings of Jesus were full of leadership lessons, and did the demand and interest in your book surprise you? Well, interestingly, I kind of backed into the project in a sense. Um, my main focus area in my writing and my research and speaking is really the core topic of self-leadership as part of an overall approach to leadership of others, uh, recognizing that ultimately the main uh, power of leadership comes from within a person. And I had focused on more traditional aspects of uh, the way that we influence ourselves, things like our actions and behavior, our thoughts, our emotion. I got into physiology and fitness. But um, one of the things that came back, um, it really started with a conversation with a uh, very famous, well-known researcher across the world, I was having a conversation, and he was quite intrigued by the notion of self-leadership. But he asked the question, he said, um, but what if self-leadership is encouraged in a context, and it's only for the purpose of manipulating others? In other words, you give them freedom to, to have choice, but you do it in a context where really they're quite constrained and limited and influenced to really towed the company line uh, nevertheless. Mm. And over the years, it occurred to me that different people are driven by different sets of values. And an emerging area, long answer here, but an emerging area is the whole area of spirituality in the workplace and how many people who formerly left their spiritual beliefs at home were now bringing them into the work environment in, in their careers. And... Um, so originally I was going to write a book that was uh, going to reflect several different religious perspectives, but I realized that uh, writing a volume like that was a bit beyond my uh, capacity, <laughs> and I decided I would start with uh, the teachings of Jesus, one of the most influential, of course, leaders in history. Were you surprised so, by what happened with the book? I, I was in a sense... Um, not so much that there was a response. I knew that, you know, already many people I respected and I knew well who often didn't openly talk about this, uh, you know, in the workplace, but had very strong religious beliefs that kind of guided them in terms of their uh, values. So I knew it was a very significant, important uh, aspect of leadership, the teachings of Jesus, I think, 
have raised a lot of issues that have uh, really, um, you know, uh, continued to be quite effective through time. But what I think I was more surprised about uh, was what it did in terms of my own work and my career. Hmm. Uh, here I was, a, a business professor, author, consultant, and I had formerly been working on a little more traditional aspects of, of uh, work, you know, teamwork, leadership, uh, interpersonal relationships, conflict management, these kind of things. And I suddenly found myself on a journey where I was appearing on, uh, among other things, religious talk shows on television and the radio, uh, sometimes with hosts that had quite conservative religious beliefs. And I always had to, uh, you know, have sort of my initial disclaimer to remind them that, again, I'm a business professor, a business writer, a consultant. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a religious expert. But uh, nevertheless, I'd study these ideas at length and also had quite a bit of experience in multiple organizations in helping companies to uh, become more effective. So the two kind of merged, and here I was on this journey, as I said, focusing on more spiritual issues than I had mm -hmm. formerly uh, focused on. And the book continued to grow, lots of reading groups, lots of uh, classes, uh, again, uh, media attention. So. In that sense, that was the surprise, is where it took me, I, I guess, in my own work. Mm -hmm. Well, the book is, is wonderful, and um, uh, I, I found that as I was reading it, I was a little surprised because uh, the lessons that you were sharing as I was reading what you were sharing about the lessons and relating it to leadership, it was real obvious after of course, reading your book, but it just never occurred to me to look at some of these passages in that way. So I'm eager to talk with you about those. And um, the book does offer some great teachings and highlights leadership wisdom contained in, of course, each of these lessons that you provide. The very first lesson that you offer you call Logs Before Specs. And on page 10 you write, when we are in a position of leadership, it is typical to think our job is to tell others what to do. And of course, this is a, a big problem uh, with new leaders and inexperienced leaders, but I think leaders that have been around for a long time as well. Um, this challenge occurs at all levels. How can we use this teaching to help us take a new approach? Yeah, uh, this, this passage is very important to me as well. I think uh, the way I like to think of Jesus' message here is that he's um, basically challenging us when we are thinking about influencing others, which ultimately that's what leadership is about, is uh, before we try and influence those others, though, to take a close look in the mirror, uh, to study ourselves a little more closely and reflect on whether we are as effective as we could be, whether we're making use of our talents, our gifts, however you want to look at this, and really becoming the best selves we can be. Until we do that, it's it's really in many ways inauthentic to go in and uh, ask others to try and improve when we're, we're not doing that ourselves. So um, to me, that's the real message in this. First, take the often very large log out of your own eye before you try and tell someone else to take that often tiny speck out of their eye. <laughs> And it's a it's a good lesson and a good foundation for for the book and for the work that you that you offer. Towards the end of of the book, 
you get into some discussion around the whole idea of being a visionary leader and having that visionary leadership style. And in your second chapter, you offer a really powerful example of a less visionary kind of leader, Donald Peterson. Can, can you tell us a, a little bit about Donald and um, this sec- the second lesson in the book, which is the last shall be first? Right. I think a lot of... Uh so-called experts in the area of leadership right now, uh, what they're challenging people or calling people to become when they're in leadership positions are visionaries, to be charismatic, to be inspiring. And that all, you know, that's important, particularly when we face a major crisis or a major change of some kind. But uh, really, day in, day out, if we go around and try and inspire others all the time with our vision and our insight and so forth, uh, and if leaders are trying to do that across whole large organizations, uh, industries, and so forth, we almost have kind of a comical image of how that uh, you know, carries out. And what this lesson was about is to sort of look beyond a visionary approach and, once again, to try and draw out the best in, in people, not so much trying to uh, have ourselves in the spotlight, but to put others in the spotlight, the ones that are actually doing the work uh, producing the product, uh, delivering the service day in, day out. Donald Peterson was a CEO of Ford Motor Company at a crucial time in their history in the early, uh, well, actually through the 1980s. And at that time, Ford uh, faced some real financial difficulties like the auto industry encountered recently in the United States. And Ford, I guess you could say, was um, in danger of potentially facing bankruptcy at that time. I I guess that was a possibility. Donald Peterson came in as CEO in the wake of highly visible leaders. Uh, Lee Iacocca had been the leader before him, Henry Ford II, Um, you know, people that were sort of up on a pedestal and viewed as being more visionary types of, of leaders. Meanwhile, uh, Donald Peterson, when he became CEO, it was it was kind of interesting. In the press, they would office, often misspell his name. People would forget who the CEO of Ford was. No. You know, it wasn't part of this tradition of Ford, you know, the larger-than-life leader. And uh, his style was much more focused on teamwork and empowerment. And one of the examples that really stands out for me was at a point when he was uh, leading the organization, he went to the chief of design who was showing him the brand-new designs for the Ford cars that would be coming out in the, in the uh, new year. And the design engineer was showing these to him, and, and Peterson was looking at them, and he was looking at the you know, chief of design, and he, he stopped him and he asked him, he said, well, what do you think of these designs? And the chief of design looked bewildered, and he said, what do you mean? He said, well, would you like to have one of these cars in your driveway? Hmm. Well, he looked at Donald Peterson. This was not the way that Ford CEOs and top executives had talked uh, historically. And so this was a bit different, but he decided to take a risk and be honest. And he said, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. want that car in my driveway. And Donald Peterson said, well, then design a car that you would want in your driveway. Um, And that resulted in the uh, Taurus and the Sable, the jelly bean cars that went on to become car of the year and and really helped uh, Ford turn around the organization. And eventually Donald Peterson was recognized by his peers. He became CEO of the year in Fortune magazine and, um, you know, became quite a success. But I would bet today many people, when they hear Donald Peterson, who are not, uh, you have not been, 
connected with Ford at great length would probably wonder again, who, you know, who are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so very different style, and I think consistent, again, with the teachings that Jesus brought forward, and that is uh, he often didn't give answers, he didn't, he used parables, he raised questions, he got people to think, he definitely had strong points of view, and he held people accountable, but often he held them accountable to make their own decisions, ultimately, and to try and become the best person that they could be. Hmm. It was a great, uh, great story, and I, I have to confess, I didn't know who he was until I read your book. But I was really fascinated uh, with him, and of course, his, his great success uh, while being a very humble leader at a really critical time in Ford's history. Mm-hmm. Well, I had to look up some of the words in Matthew's passage um, that you uh, share. I, um, I'd like to just go ahead and, and read this passage. It says, uh, Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? It is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within the human heart that all evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these come from within, and they defile a person. What can leaders take from this passage? Well, you know, again, the focus here is not really on uh, the types of food that we're eating and whether they are clean and you know, uh, kosher and wholesome, but uh, really there's more of a metaphorical message that's coming through this, and that is it's not so much what we show on the outside that counts, it's what we are on the inside. Uh, Again, connecting back to values, and I like to use the word virtues even, uh, to challenge ourselves to higher level values. Impression management was a very popular topic a few years back, and I think it still carries forward today. Sometimes people trying to, uh, you know, create an impression based on what they wear, what they say, how they look, uh, the kinds of actions they take that are more symbolic. Um, And these kind of things can be useful as a leader. But ultimately, if we don't really have our own act together on the inside, paying attention to what we're doing, the choices we're making, using self-observation, self-analysis, and changing ourselves in positive and constructive ways, growing, learning, becoming a better person. All these things are, are an essential part of leadership, and the teachings here are to me, that's really the, what the focus is on, is once again looking in the mirror, getting our act together on the inside, so that then we can serve as an example and a model for others, not to become just like us, but to um, themselves go through that sort of same kind of self-analysis and uh, self-development process. There was an example that was in the uh, chapter as well that you and I had uh, talked about earlier. I don't know if you would like me to focus on that as an illustration. About Chris? I would love to hear about Chris. Okay. Well, Chris really represents many people that I've encountered in a number of different organizations. Again, leadership uh, is a very challenging role when we find ourselves in positions of leadership uh, to occupy and to transition into. We often, again, believe that if I'm a leader, I'm now in a position of authority, I'm supposed to have all the answers, I'm supposed to make the decisions, and so forth. And oftentimes, unfortunately, uh, people believe that they're, they're 
directions, their ideas should not be challenged. Um, and so Chris is an example of an individual who became a manager, and uh, he was not doing particularly well with the people that worked for him because morale was down, he conflict was emerging, he wasn't sure what it was, but you know it, it, things just were not going well. And so he went through a uh, process of self-analysis. He recorded situations. He just took some simple notes, you know, on a pad of paper he carried with him. Uh, took some simple notes about encounters he had that did not go particularly well that seemed to lead to uh, difficult relationships with some of the people that worked for him. And what he found was that these were occurring primarily when he would throw out an idea or um, ask somebody to do something and often imply a certain way that they ought to do it. But instead of doing it the way he wanted, they did it in a different way, or they even questioned um, the direction that he was pointing them in. And so he, he started to analyze his notes, and he realized this was happening maybe three, four times a day, where he would have a difficult interpersonal uh, encounter where somebody, again, challenged his thinking as a manager, and he was becoming quite defensive about this. Um, and he saw it really as questioning his authority. But after reflecting on it further, he realized in many cases it wasn't so much that they were not uh, trying to you know, follow through on what he was asking them to do and not respecting him, but rather they were trying to initiate. They were trying to think for themselves, to come up with more creative ways of doing it better ways based on their experience and doing their job day in, day out, which ultimately we really need now with this uh, rapid uh, as changes occurring in the world right now, as high competition as there is in, in business and so forth. And so he finally um, sort of taught himself, I guess, through this process. He began to back off, allow people when he delegated uh, to them an assignment, rather than checking up on them, making sure they were doing it his way, essentially, he, he let go. He let people start to do it their own way. Sometimes they made a mistake here and there, but they learned from it. And over time, they began to become much more committed, uh, got along much better with Chris, and morale went up and performance went up as well. So it was really a lesson in um, being able to let go and recognizing in himself that he was really the problem in this case. Yeah. Um, you know, he was the one that was causing other people not to feel like they were owning their jobs and being able to do things in, in the ways that they believed were the best way to do it. I think uh, Chris's story is really an inspiring one because we all know how hard it is to, to change our behavior even after that kind of analysis and really looking within and recognizing you know, the, the negative impact our behavior has. It's still very, very difficult to really you know, come up with and, and become something new and something different. I was really Actually, inspired. Actually, you know, one, one last anecdote I can mm -hmm. attach to this, too, in teaching particularly my uh, MBA classes with experienced managers. Um, I have them do a class project, which is some kind of self-development, self-improvement project, and um, they're supposed to choose something. It can be physical fitness, uh, better eating habits. It can be stress management, time management, whatever they choose. But I'll often have a few of the students, even though I, you know, try to encourage them over and over again to choose the project that's of interest to them and important to them, but then they come up and they start to ask me, you know, what, 
what do you think I should do my project on? <laughs> and I always throw it back to them. And I and this is the challenge because you know when you're in that professor role, you you want to sound wise and like you have the answers. But I have no idea what it is that's going to be most helpful to you. So again, what's most important to you? What's of interest to you? That should be your topic. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I think a very timely lesson in your book, uh, considering our new economy, is the um, is Jesus' suggestion that we should stop worrying. Uh, and you offer some great advice for those of us who struggle with this. Could you share this with us? Yeah, um, basically, he what he does uh, is points out that worry does no good, you know. And he uses birds of the air, you know, and flowers of the field, and how they're so beautiful on their own without a day of, you know, any worry at all. And as human beings, we have a tendency to get nervous when things happen. Uh, the way the stock market is going right now, I'm sure there are many people that are uh, quite worried about their savings and, and so forth. Um, but it's futile, is basically what te- Jesus teaches. And he basically challenges us to remind ourselves of that to recognize that worry doesn't add any length to our lives. In fact, uh, you know, it can contribute to illness uh, and actually disease um, in, you know, more extreme cases. So that's first thing is to recognize that worry really does us no good. And uh, the other challenge that he has for us, I think, is to live in the moment, to not so much focus on tomorrow. We need to plan ahead, prepare ourselves, and so forth. But when our thoughts, our concerns, our worry are about what might happen tomorrow, what might happen in the meeting later on and so forth, rather than focusing in the moment on preparation, on getting whatever the task is we're focused on right now and doing that to uh, the best of our ability, um, those are the kind of things that he recommends. There's also another, I like this as a strategy the Houston Worry Clinic has suggested, And they have a number of different ideas, but one of them is to set aside uh, time for worry each day, like 30 minutes of your day. And again, this gets into kind of the humor of the way we can influence ourselves. But, you know, the idea that, okay, I'm not going to worry at all until tonight between 6.30 and 7. That's going to be my worry time. So I'll sit down and I'll focus on and I'll worry about all the things that I have that are concerns to me, and I'll do that for that half hour, and then I'll let it go, and I won't worry after that. Well, people that have tried that have found after, you know, a couple of days of the worry time, pretty soon they get into their worry time, and they they can't think of what to worry on. And the whole idea of the futility of this, Mm -hmm. I'm going to purposely try to worry, deal with (laughs) these concerns, uh, you know, is is sort of driven home. Yeah, that's great. I loved loved that uh, technique. Um, Another one that that I've read about is when these things pop into your mind and you start to feel the, the need to worry, just in your loudest, uh, most inner voice that you can come up with, just to call out to yourself sort of a busy signal. Busy, you know, I, I can't <laughs> yeah. do this right now, you know, and, uh, yeah. and then you could save it for your worry time. But I, I think the whole idea of the worry time just is, um, just is, 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 is a fun um, approach to this, to recognize uh, how crazy it is. In, in mm-hmm. a chapter called Let Your Light Shine, you offer some powerful illustrations of leaders who have done this. Um, could you highlight the lesson and, and share an example with us? Well, the, one of the ones that I share in the book is Ricardo Simler, uh, CEO of Simco in Brazil. 
and he actually had a book called Maverick, uh, which some people may <clears throat> recognize. But he was a CEO again, uh, I guess more in the tradition that I was suggesting, you know, the non-Donald Peterson uh, type CEO. Uh, he, he felt, again, in a leadership position that he was supposed to make the decisions. He was working 18-hour days. He was trying to handle everything himself, uh, not really allowing people to grow and to own their jobs. Uh, not so much, I don't think, intentionally, but I think it was just he kind of saw this as his role. And he began to encounter health problems, morale was going down, things were not just looking, they were not looking good in Semco, his uh, company. So he made a purposeful decision uh, to begin to let go and to let others have ownership again of their work. He empowered them. He uh, completely changed his management style around, uh, delegating, you know, what needed to be done to, for others to make the decisions. He removed nine layers of management, if you can imagine that. So it was quite a hierarchical organization. Yeah, and wow. um, he let employees, he, he went so far as to let employees set their own work hours, uh, to vote on company decisions, uh, in some cases even set their own salaries. And as a result, among other things, one of the most dramatic outcomes is sales went up shortly or over time within a reasonable length of time after this uh, went up like 600%. And, of course, morale and enthusiasm in the organization uh, really went up. And many people became, well, actually, one worker described it as kind of a paradise to work in where no one wanted to leave. Just a dramatic turnaround again because, you know, in this case, this particular leader um, what he did is he allowed himself to serve as an example of someone that allowed others to grow. Right. And as a leader, he demonstrated, and others sort of treated each other that way throughout the culture, um, with respect, every individual was uh, focused on as having value. And Ricardo Semler allowed that to occur through his own leadership light, I guess you would say. Yeah, and I, I think what you just shared there, you know, that he demonstrated it, I think is, is part of the real power in what, what he did in that people saw his earlier management style and had to recognize how, how difficult it is for him to go through that, you know, kind of personal transformation, uh, kind of sending the message to everyone in the organization, hey, I can change and I can become more effective and we all can do this. Um, But he he led the way. I I thought that was such a powerful example. Yeah, exactly. Do not judge is the lesson offered in a chapter that you call Put the Gavel Away. You offer some powerful but I think really sad examples of some pretty harsh bosses and their impact on the organizations they're, they're leading. Could you share a few examples and, and your counsel on how we can put the gavel away? Yeah, you know, this connects with this, uh, I think it's sort of a popular topic right now of bad bosses, you know, that demoralize people, make people feel bad about themselves. I still encounter, uh, it's surprising, you know, in this you know, contemporary age that we still encounter leaders that are so punitive and judgmental and, and cause people to have stress and feel bad about going to work. Um, one of the examples that is a classic for me, uh, you know, I've been in many different organizations and worked with a lot of different people, uh, both as a worker. I was actually a machine operator in an automobile plant years ago, and I worked in retailing for a while, and I've had management positions. 
But um, as a consultant, I've had the privilege to go into many organizations and observe relationships and leadership styles and so forth. And there was one particular organizational example that stands out in my mind, and that is it was a uh, large department store company, and there was an assistant buyer who uh, was working with the buyer, his boss, and was put in charge of one of the two departments that they managed together. And he put the assistant buyer for the first time. He allowed him to sort of manage this uh, this department. And under his management, uh, sales and revenue went up uh, drastically. And he thought he would be praised by the buyer. Um, and the assistant buyer was fairly new to this culture and to the organization. So he's still w- learning how things worked. Um, but the buyer, instead of praising him, actually began to criticize him for a number of different things that hadn't gone exactly right, uh, in particular some furniture. This was in a um, furniture department, a couple of furniture departments, uh, had been misplaced for an advertisement, um, and this was without the assistant buyer's knowledge and permission and so forth, so it wasn't something he did at all. It was a promotion thing that occurred within the company, but he got blamed for this. And so the assistant buyer was very confused. Here he did this, what looked like very high performance, uh, you know, he delivered high performance, and instead of being praised, he, he was being punished. Well, shortly thereafter, they met with the division manager. Now, this was the boss of the buyer, who was the boss of the assistant buyer. And in the meeting, uh, the assistant buyer was surprised to observe the division manager being highly critical and highly punitive of the buyer, even though a number of things had been going quite well uh, for them in their departments, their furniture departments. Well, then they went up, there was a meeting, and this was through a chain of command with the annual planning process, and they met with the vice president. So now it was the vice president, the division manager, the buyer, and the assistant buyer, and the vice president tore into the division manager, began to be highly critical and judgmental for a number of things that were going wrong, even though the division was doing quite well uh, overall. But quickly it became apparent that the style within this culture was a judgmental, evaluative, punitive style. And uh, because of that, many people were demoralized. They were more trying to guess what bosses wanted. Uh, and do what they wanted, even if they had information that would indicate change was needed, they needed to do something in a different way. So in this case, judgment was just driving out performance and motivation. It was interfering uh, all the way through the chain of command. Yeah, it's a a powerful uh, example and um, definitely able to to see how that kind of thing could just cascade through the entire organization and really cripple creativity and and all the kinds of things that we need today to be successful. So actually, one of of my other topic areas, too, that I should add here um, Mm -hmm. that I've written about at length and in fact have, you know, this is, we're talking about a Barrett Kohler publisher's book here, but I have another book called The Power of Failure, which is another of my favorites, which focuses on the whole idea when we make mistakes, we have setbacks, uh, there are huge learning opportunities. And as a leader, if a person that works for us or with us is a better way to put it, makes a mistake, but they mean well, they do their best, they put forth the effort, and something just went wrong, that's not the time to judge and Mm -hmm. punish, uh, really, but it's rather to focus on the learning that can occur, um, the change that can be made to help performance go up in the future. So an awful lot of this, to me, uh, really points at 
learning from failure and as part of our leadership style, recognizing that when people try to do more, when they really try to contribute more than we're asking and they're really committed, and they're, so they're trying different things, they're stepping outside their normal experience, there will be mistakes at time. But if those are mistakes with good intentions, uh, it's not really a time to judge, but it's a time to learn. Absolutely. If we can just all remember to always ask the question, what's the lesson? <laughs> okay, yeah. And recognize there is one somewhere. We just need to figure it out. Hmm. Well, in, in a chapter that you call Gather the Lost Sheep, you offer, I, I think, a really challenging chapter for leaders who might be struggling with a decision related to how long they should continue to invest in a struggling, underperforming employee. I think this is probably one of the more difficult decisions that, that leaders um, have to make uh, many times. Would you share your thoughts on this lesson with regards to under, um, underperforming uh, employees? Right. I, I've, I've had many uh, very interesting exchanges with uh, colleagues, and we don't always see eye to eye. Um, even the colleagues that I often work with directly that believe in empowerment and teamwork, um, very often they do believe, well, there's a limit. You know, you should only go so far with an employee, and then you've got to cut them loose if, if they're not showing the improvement, the turnaround, and so forth. And I suppose there are certainly cases where you know, that is something that maybe needs to occur, especially if somebody's interfering with the performance or especially if they're endangering somebody else. If you're working in, you know, some kind of manufacturing environment and somebody's being reckless or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But um, more often than not, I've found, and I've encountered dramatic examples of this throughout my career, where individuals that really looked like they were not salvageable. You know, they were just too low performing. They were not making improvement um, under the right conditions who, that had dramatic turnarounds. And, and it's not just, you know, simple anecdotes. It's not just a handful. I mean, I've seen this in whole cultures, whole work environments where the employees just look like they couldn't cut it. Uh, it was an underperforming part of an organization, and when they were given given a chance to really express their creativity to to get a sense of ownership in that environment, how much better they were able to do. Um, one example in particular that I'll share uh, is when I was doing some training for a large American tire company, and um, I was training managers in a large manufacturing plant, and uh, they were talking about one supervisor in particular, and one manager especially focused in on this uh, supervisor. And this, by the way, was a manager who was attending. He was one of the people in this uh, training program. And he was somebody that sat in the back. He had his arms folded. He often looked like he was frowning. He, he just mm -hmm. didn't look, you know, like he wanted to be there. It was one of those things where uh, probably, you know, I assumed maybe a, some, a higher up had asked him to to take this training even though he didn't want to, to be in it. He didn't really contribute a lot. When he did contribute to the conversations, to the discussion, it didn't necessarily seem constructive. But um, at any rate, I was focusing on uh, self-leadership and the importance of empowering others and giving them a chance and recognizing the value, the potential value in everyone. Well, <laughs> he took the lesson, and he, uh, he, this made me nervous, I have to say. He kind of went, I thought, too far. Um, the next session, we were meeting weekly, I came back and I asked at the beginning of the session, I said, well, did anybody try out some of the things we talked about last time? Anything new happen that they want to raise for the group? 
well, this manager raised his hand. Huh. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> you know, what, what are we going to have here? Well, he began to tell the story about a supervisor who was so bad in this plant, they were about to fire him. He had an alcohol problem. He just was not doing well in his job. Uh, in every way, it just seemed like he was a hopeless case. And what he had decided to do, based on our training program, is over the week, is to begin to put this supervisor in charge mm. as often as possible. He even made excuses to leave the work area to put him in charge of whole sections of the manufacturing plant. Oh and this goodness. was without any training. Uh, you know, normally this is, you know, the sink or swim approach just mm -hmm. does not work particularly well. But what occurred, and the other managers were all shaking their heads and looked dumbfounded by this and surprised, you know, they couldn't figure it out themselves. But over the previous week, the supervisor's performance had completely turned around. Jeez. He had gone over, you know, like seven days from about the worst performing supervisor in the plant to arguably the model supervisor. Hmm. Now, at this point, I almost felt like I was in a religious witnessing kind of experience <laughs> in a church environment or something, and it was making me a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, I was glad to hear this. But then they went on to explain, and he had not taken a drink now in like five days, which hmm. is the first time in years that he had even gotten a handle on his alcohol problem. Well, you know, I met with that or with that group another couple of weeks, and I guess the supervisor was stu still doing well. I don't know how he did after that. I hope he continued to perform well. Um, it's just one anecdote. It's a, a simple case. We can't draw too much from this, but it's very consistent in a more dramatic way with what I've often seen, and that is that every individual has potential somewhere in them to do something worthwhile, often exceptional, if they're given the chance. So giving up on anybody, I see, is an unfortunate, and that is kind of a failure. I like to think all mm -hmm. failure is a stepping stone to success. But when we have to give up totally on an individual, uh, completely let them go, um, you know, I, that's something that I prefer not to have to see. And I've encountered so many cases where, you know, individuals had, in fact, turned things around dramatically. It's fascinating. It's really a, an interesting part of the book and a challenging part of the book uh, as well. Um, I hope folks will, will read this section of the book and, and think about ways that they can apply it. Um, one of the other topics that you deal with in the book is the area of change. And um, with all of the, the literature and books and information that's, that's out there, change management initiatives still fail most of the time. According to the Blanchard Company, about 70% of the time change initiatives fail. I was really um, pleased to see Kurt Lewin mentioned in your book. I'm a fan of Kurt Lewin, and uh, it was really nice to see him mentioned there. What can we learn about change? Kurt Lewin actually suggested a model of change, which many of the writings more recently in the research suggest uh, different models maybe have surpassed Kurt Lewin's model. But he has a basic model that I've found to be quite uh, significant and important, and that is a three-step model. It's the idea of unfreezing, uh, then introducing a change, and then refreezing. And as a metaphor, uh, in fact, I often think of growing up as a kid in Michigan. Uh, in the wintertime, we would often play in the snow and we'd make snowmen and so forth. And later on, I, I drew a metaphor from this. Um, what we found was if we put in a lot of work and we created a snow 
person or a snow creature or something, there might be other kids in the neighborhood that at nighttime would sneak in, you know, to the backyard and break, you know, knock down all of our work and destroy it. And one of the things we found is if the outside faucet was left on, we could take a hose and we could coat this snowman with a coating of ice. Mm -hmm. And then when some kids would want to try and mess with, you know, our creative work, uh, they'd be in for a surprise. They might give it a kick and, you know, have a sore foot from that because it's rock solid. Well, this isn't exactly what the way things are in organizations, certainly, but, but I think the idea of whenever we want to introduce something different, a new procedure, uh, new technology, the idea that we first we have to go in and we have to open people up to that possibility. We have to talk it over. We have to uh, have discussions about what are the advantages and disadvantages uh, to take care of some concerns and fears about the change and open people up to the fact that this could actually improve uh, your capacity to do your work. It might make things easier for you to perform at a higher level. It might make your work more enjoyable. <clears throat> and then once they are open to the possibility of change, then we can introduce the new technology or the training that goes along with it and then do some refreezing or introduce some stability again. Of course, things are always evolving and changing, but um, introduce some stability back into the process afterwards, maybe incentives uh, for people to follow through with the new procedure or process. Now, one example that, um, that I drew from this in some of the work that I've done again is connected with American Express. Uh, there was a mutual fund operation. Actually, it was an independent company that became part of American Express that was moving in the direction of uh, instituting formal teams into their work environment. Previously, individuals worked very much as individuals and had not really worked together and coordinated their work and collaborated at any level. So you miss out the synergi- you know, synergistic advantages, one plus one plus one equals five kind of effect. And what this particular organization did is it uh, pulled people from across the entire organization, a cross-section from the low to the upper levels of this whole work system, and they created a design team that then went off and designed a way to move into teams that fit with the culture, Uh, They continuously sought input from individuals that worked in this work system. And um, so they had all the inputs. They came up with the design. This occurred over a few months. And then over a weekend, they actually introduced this new team system so that when uh, the, the members of the organization left on Friday, working in individual jobs in this mutual fund operation. They would be working with clients over the phone and so forth individually. They came back in Monday morning, and now they were working in teams based on regions of the country, and they had different people that were uh, focusing on different areas, but they combined uh, their their efforts, and uh, together now they were performing uh, the work. And as a consequence, What often occurs with a major change like this is performance takes an initial dip in performance. In this organization, because they had unfrozen the environment, they introduced the change, and then they had created some incentives for following through, uh, performance immediately shot up, which is rare with a a major change like this. And, uh, you know, on all the different measures, it was just, it became kind of a model um, facility. So in your chapter called Instill Commitment, Not Greed, you share what I think is one of the most subversive and I think maybe most difficult of all Jesus' teachings uh, that can be offered to leaders, 
Would you be willing to read the passage for us which is actually found on page 123 and share an illustration of how this is lived out by, by some organizations? Okay, let me get the page here. Okay, so this is a bit of a lengthy passage, but let me uh, read through this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When the evening came, the landowner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to, the, to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Hmm. Yeah, this, this flies in the face of uh, really when I had my uh, graduate education, the really popular topic at the time was reinforcement theory and mm -hmm. introducing that into leadership. And a lot of training was occurring, consulting, management changes around teaching leaders to be positively reinforcing, to target behaviors, to identify what it was they wanted from their workers. And then when they performed at a certain standard, a certain level, accomplished tasks, to praise them for that or give financial rewards or uh, better career opportunities. And so it was very much a contingent kind of relationship where based on what people did, how they performed, that is what they got. They got more if they did more. They got less if they did less. Mm -hmm. And this particular parable is exactly, you know, it goes in the face of this, the whole idea that people that worked one hour got received as much pay at the end of the day as those that had worked hours and hours and hours throughout a hot, long workday. It also flies in the face of another key uh, management concept connected with equity theory, and that is um, we should be paid based on how much we uh, put in to a work setting. So in other words, what often, has, what often happens is individuals will look at what they're getting, what their salary is, what their pay level is, compare that to somebody they see as a reasonably comparable other individual in the work system, and then look at how much they're doing compared to how much the individual's doing and how much each is getting for what they're doing. And if the ratio is out of, out of whack, then that leads to frustration, conflict, and so forth. If I'm doing a lot more and I'm not receiving more, 
then I become frustrated. That's the whole idea of equity theory. Well, in this case, I think what Jesus is pointing to, quite consistent with what I believe is uh, more contemporary management thinking and certainly uh, consistent with the whole idea of empowering workers and trying to find the best in each individual, is we're not so much looking for compliance. We're not trying to get people to do the minimum of what we're asking based on a certain level of pay. We want individuals to go above and beyond, not just focus on, on pay or other rewards that they get, but rather um, believing in the work that they're doing, uh, valuing what the organization stands for. So it's, it's digging, once again, deeper inside the individual and inside all of the workforce. Um, W.L. Gore is actually one of the organizations that I have done a lot of writing and uh, studying research on uh, with a colleague. And W.L. Gore is the company that produces Gore-Tex, which goes into you know outdoor clothing and mm-hmm. camping equipment and so forth. But they have many other products like Glide Dental Floss, and they're a highly creative, innovative organization, high, high-performing. They're privately owned, but their performances continue to be strong, and they've been innovative for many, many years. And this is an organization, actually, I see in many ways as kind of the model of the future high-effective organization. But they have long believed that um, they don't want to attract people based on having the highest pay. They have good competitive pay, but they don't try to be the highest. They don't try and hire away uh, individuals from competitors based on pay. Rather, they try to focus on what GORE stands for, the culture, how people work well together, uh, how they support one another, and they want individuals to do their work at a high level you know, based on something other than just what you're going to get, like the workers in the field, you know, at the end of the day, but rather on what they believe in and what uh, their connection is to W.O. Gore as an organization. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, really a, a great part of the book and, um, a, you know, a reminder that uh, managers still tend to think that it's all about money and that money is what motivates, yet research, you know, consistently reveals as people leave and um, they're asked, you know, what the top reason was that they left, uh, about eight, over 80% of them uh, indicate reasons other than pay. Uh, so we, we just tend to overemphasize that and, and miss out on probably the bigger opportunities of creating meaningful work, and that's what you were talking about in the section of the book. I thought it was excellent. Um, the parable of the mustard seed uh, took on, for me, a whole new significance um, in in the parallels that you offered to our society and many workplaces that we find today. Could you share this timely lesson with us as we wrap up our time with you today? Right. I, th- I think this whole idea is symbolic of in many ways, lessons throughout the entire book and 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 the teachings of Jesus in general. Again, the idea that we want to be larger than life as leaders, we want to do great things, we want to have vision and so forth, Um, that can become a major obstacle because in the end we're just human beings. We make mistakes. Um, We're not necessarily, um, you know, hopefully we can do uh, amazing things, but to hold ourselves to that kind of standard constantly can become quite demoralizing. What Jesus is talking about is the mustard seed. He calls it the smallest of seeds. When planted, can grow into a very large bush. Uh, and the whole idea of a small, simple idea, contribution, 
um, something that we do can set the stage for things that are almost miraculous at times. It might be supporting a coworker when they're down, uh, helping and contributing to a problem that that's occurred within our team or our organization at some level. It might seem small and simple, but it can set the stage. It can it can help people to go forward at a higher level, at a higher performance, and, and so forth. Complimenting, recognizing, praising somebody, uh, taking the time to listen, uh, taking the time to to be there when people need your support. Um, all these things, I think, reflect small mustard seeds that can be planted and grow into uh, significant uh, accomplishments or significant results later on. And one of the uh, classic examples, and people have heard this, I'm sure, example many, many times, but once again, I always try to keep this in the back of my mind, is the example of 3M and the uh, creation of the Post-it note and the idea that there was a worker at 3M who was part of a project that was developing a new glue, and in the end, after investing lots of resources, much time, and so forth, really what resulted was a rather inferior glue. It was not very sticky, but rather than throwing his hands up in the air, which you know sometimes we have a tendency to want to do, to think, oh, now we failed, let's give up. What a waste of time. Let's cut our losses. Instead, he did a small little thing. He took that glue and he, he put it on some little strips of paper, and he found that he had created something that was handy for him when he sang in the church choir to use his bookmarks hmm. in his hymnal. And then he began to uh, essentially internally market these posted notes, which weren't called that yet, but internally at 3M, and he found many of the employees really wanted these things. They began to find all kinds of uses for them. And ultimately, this small little idea, taking lousy glue, really based on a failure that many people might have given up on pursuing some kind of great discovery. 3M is noted for highly innovative breakthroughs over the years. But instead, he stuck with it, did this small little thing, created post-it notes, which turned into a huge uh, mustard plant that uh, bush that you know has yielded millions and millions of dollars since then. That's yeah, a great example. Well, well, Chuck, I, I want to thank you again for your taking the time today to give us this great tour of your, your book. And in truth, we really only have scratched the surface. There's so much more in the book that we've not had the opportunity to talk about. And I do want to encourage people. I think this is a unique uh, leadership book, and I think it's a book that, that, that folks will want to read and study. Um, so to once again, to get a copy of uh, this book uh, that we are discussing today, please go to the publisher's website, www.bk connection.com. And following our interview today, I want to invite you to join in the conversation on leadership by joining the LinkedIn group uh, for Bookends, which is called Bookends the Discussion. You can pose questions and discuss uh, leadership issues with your colleagues and peers and, and authors who are also a member of, the, of this group. So all of our Bookends podcasts can be found on both iTunes and, once again, also at the bookendsbookclub.net site. Check out our resource blog for a free chapter of today's selection. Bookends is brought to you by The Team Approach. Our producer is John David Bowman, and I'm Susan Stamm. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.